Well, it's Mother's Day, and I just wanted to express to all of you mothers who are listening that we are grateful for you. Uh, We're grateful for the sacrifices that you have made. Uh, We hope that this is a good day for you. We know that Mother's Day isn't uh, a great day for everyone. Most uh, mothers want to be celebrated for their faithfulness, for their tireless efforts and unconditional love that they show to their children. Uh, And yet we know that some uh, are grieving today because of losses. And uh, today, as we think about Mother's Day, we want to encourage you as we think about and meditate on the favor of God. Uh, The favor of God is, is a message for moms who are celebrating today, moms who are sorrowful, and really for all of us. Now, as I was thinking about our text this morning, I I was reminded of a line from The Godfather. I know that doesn't sound like a good Mother's Day text. Uh, I haven't actually seen the movie unedited. I only watched it on TBS growing up. But I was reminded of a famous line from uh, one of the characters in that movie. Uh, Now, what's happening in this scene is uh, we find Michael, who is from the Corleone family, and he's trying to take over this hotel in Vegas. Now, he's taking it from a guy named Mo Green, who has a lot of experience in uh, this area. He's given credit for bringing gambling to, the, to Vegas in this movie. And uh, in that scene, Mo Green looks at Michael, who's trying to take it from him, and he's, he gets very irritated, and he screams at him, do you know who I am? I'm Mo Green. I made my bones while you were still dating cheerleaders. Uh, now, in that statement, uh, I find that Mo says a lot. He says a lot, and in fact, if we were honest, I think some of us might actually sound like Mo sometimes. You didn't know this, but sometimes you sound like a gangster. So when he screams out, do you know who I am? Now, what Mo meant was, do you know my name, my resume, the things that I have done? Do you know my merits? If you did, you wouldn't be asking this thing that you're asking. And maybe you've said something just like this in your own heart. Maybe you even said it out loud, even this morning. I know that I have. It's Mother's Day, and maybe you labor day in and day out, feeding, providing for, protecting, and discipling kids, all in very difficult, unique kinds of circumstances. And no one ever asks you to write a book about your experiences and the wisdom and the grace that you show. Maybe you don't feel like as you are posting images on Facebook of all of the good things that you're doing for your kids that glorify God, that you're not getting as many likes as you deserve. You know, you can feel invisible and unappreciated and angry. Maybe you've tried to encourage someone who's suffering, and you've shared the suffering in your life, and you've suffered immensely. And isn't it fascinating that even our sufferings can become a kind of resume that we use to, to trump the sufferings of others as though those sufferings don't matter as much. And when people tell us their sufferings, we see them as small in comparison to the experiences that we've had. Or maybe you feel really qualified for a job at work or, or even at the church that you did not get, but you feel like you deserved, and you get upset, and you say, do you not know who I am? And if you don't say it out loud, in your heart, you are beginning to tally up those merits. We can find all kinds of ways that we are thinking about the way that we deserve favor that we have not received. What a perfect thing to be thinking about this morning. As we pick up in our series on David and 
2 Samuel 7. Here's a story of a man who we read about just last week who was sitting in a palace made of cedar, and he could have uh, sat and he could have tallied up all kinds of accomplishments and merits. Now, he had peace on every side. All of his enemies were silenced before him on this day in 2 Samuel 7. And if he were to look back on his resume, he could have said, look at what I have done. Surely I have the favor of the Lord. I have slayed giants. Uh, I am the one whom God said that he has anointed me as his king. I'm the one of whom the women were singing in the streets. He is a mighty warrior who has killed his tens of thousands. This is a man with quite the resume. He took Mount Zion. He brought the ark to God's holy hill. And here he is looking in his palace down at the ark as we begin. And he is thinking, look at all that I have done. And now my greatest thing that I'm going to do yet is to build a house for God. And it's in the moment of that that statement that he makes that Nathan says, this sounds good. Why don't you do it? And yet what we find is in the following verses that God says, David, you were going to buy me a house. You were going to build me a house, but you don't understand. I'm about to build you a house. Now in this text this morning, what we are going to see is that as David has just heard these mighty promises that God has given him, that he is going to give him an eternal dynasty, a house, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and a name that is great in the nations. We find that in this text, God is, has shown him that he has made awesome promises to him that he could not even begin to believe, that overshadow and make his merits look small compared to the great purposes of God. And this morning, we're going to see David's response in verses 18 to 29 to the amazing grace that God shows towards David. See, God's grace in these verses, we find, reorients David's view of himself and others. Now, if you're wondering what grace is, grace is God's unmerited favor. And we find in this text that God is showing extravagant, unprecedented grace to the line of David. See, God's covenant doesn't leave David asking, do you know who I am? Now, once confronted with the grace of God, He is asking another question, who am I? That's the question I hope that all of us begin to ask as we unravel this text this morning. Here's our big idea. If you write notes, you can write this down. Grasping God's grace leads to humility and gratitude. Grasping God's grace leads to humility and attitude uh, and gratitude. We see this in a number of ways. First, God's grace humbles David and moves him to praise God. We pray with me and ask that, that God would reorient our hearts towards God's grace as we listen. Pray with me really quickly. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are asking for your help. Father, each of our hearts need to be reoriented in the way that we view ourselves, you and others, by the grace that has been shown to us. And Lord, we ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit and through your word this morning. In your name we do pray. Amen. Now first, you'll notice that God's grace humbles David and moves him to praise. Now, we know that sometimes God humbles his children through discipline. He mentioned that last week. But this week, what we find is is that God has humbled David through his grace. The scene is gripping. 
David was literally, as we began the text in verse 1, sitting in his house of cedar. But here we find David has moved geographically, and I would say spiritually as well, as he is now sitting before the ark of God in his presence. And we'll notice that praise issues from his lips and declares what God has done and what he is like. And David does this in three rhetorical questions. The first is, who am I? Who am I in verses 18 to 19? And this is a lesson in God's grace for the nations. That's what David is. He is a, a lesson in God's grace for the nations. Now, David assesses his resume, his merits, in light of God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, extravagant grace. And he is moved to give God glory, praising him. Uh, notice what he says in 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 19 again. Here's what he says. He says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, God's grace drew David away from the, the enchantment of his own home and riches in this house of cedar to come and humbly sit in the presence of his awe-inspiring God who initiated this eternal covenant with him. Even the title David addresses God with, Lord God, or Adonai Elohim, I believe exposes how small he feels in light of those far-reaching purposes of God. I mean, catch this. David uses the same title seven times here in this text for God and nowhere else. In Genesis 15, Abraham also uses this title two times in response to God's covenant promises to him and nowhere else. The point, I believe that David understands that his meteoric rise from shepherd to king pales in comparison to God's purposes for him and the grand scheme of redemptive history. In other words, he is saying, uh, I have risen and God has made much of me, but there is something much grander in redemptive history that God is doing and I am part of that story. See, David recognizes these promises. They are not just for him. They are not just for his people. See, God's grace to David, notice he says, is instruction for mankind. Literally, the word for mankind is Adam. Like the first man who fell to sin. It's also a word that's used elsewhere for humanity at large. And here he says, what God is doing in me, it is actually Torah for Adam. Now God promised, you'll remember, an offspring who would undo the works of Satan immediately after David fell, uh, after uh, Adam fell in Genesis 3.15. And, and you'll remember that, that later God promised Abraham that that offspring that was bringing hope would come through him, saying, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
Because you have obeyed my voice. That's in Genesis 22. And then we find that David's son Solomon picks up on this when he is considering God's promises to his father David. And in Psalm 72, Solomon recognizes that that covenant and the promises that were made to Adam, Abraham, and Israel would now be realized through a kingly offspring from the line of David. He would be a blessing to the nations. He says this, may his name endure forever, this offspring that is coming. His fame continue as long as the sun. And may the people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Now up to this point in the story, God has made David greater and greater. But here God pulls back the curtain and he reveals that God and his great purposes make David feel like he needs to put his lifetime achievement award back in the box. All those things that I have done, they are small in comparison to the grand purposes that God is, is, is working out. And that's why David, in response to what he sees in this covenant, is, who am I? See, David has just realized he was a shepherd whom God purposed not only to rule his people, but to have an eternal son who would have an eternal throne in an eternal kingdom that would bless the nations forever. Now, don't miss this. If you're thinking, what is the right way to respond to God's unmerited favor? It is humble praise. Humble praise is really the only way that we ought to respond when we come into the presence of God, when we recognize who God is. Now, I just want to ask you for a minute as you're listening to just slow down and let your mind and your heart savor that reality. The grace and favor of the steadfast love to us from God who sits enthroned far above the earth, far above the heavens and the cherubim, that that God should cause us to reassess our great promises that have been promised to us and reassess our greatest accomplishments in light of the promises and to reposture our hearts towards God because of those promises and reorient the way that we live before God and others. In other words, if we really see God and understand what he has told us about ourselves in Christ, what we find is we need to reassess everything, our best things. We need to reposture our hearts towards him, and we need to reorient the way that we live before others. See, who am I that God would love me? Who are you that God would love you? Who is David that God would love David? See, the world posts a resume, but the Christian boasts in God. Who am I is the humble prelude to God's praise. It's a recognition of who we are before God and his transcendent greatness. And God's grace, it is not only shocking in light of our merits, but our demerits as well. Uh, in Knowing God, a, a great book for Christians, if you haven't read it, excellent book, need to read it, simple to read, profound in its, its theology. But there J.I. Packer says this, the grace of God is God and his love freely being shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit 
and indeed defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and who had no reason to expect anything but severity. Who am I? My merits are unworthy of God's grace. And my demerits deserve God's just wrath. And that grace ought to move our poor, stammering tongues to humble praise. That's what David's second question raises and praises when he says, what more can I say to you? In verses 20 to 22, David praises God for the purposes of God's heart. Now, David's clearly a preacher because he's saying that he's speechless before God, but then he just keeps on going and going. Uh, Notice in verses 20 to 22, he says this, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There's no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. See, God's grace, it silences David and his talk of building God a house, and it awakens in him this reality that his amazing resume of merits, it can't explain God's favor to David, to his offspring, to Israel, and then to the nations. See, David knows that he can't be the ground of God's grace, the the cause of God showing grace to David. It cannot be found in his heart. And he's speechless because he knows that God knows David completely. Nothing in David's heart makes sense of God's unmerited favor. Everything is bare before God. You'll remember that God rejected Saul. And Samuel told him in 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Lord has sought after a man after his own heart. A man after God's own heart. That's David. Now, I think David is, through this covenant, doing some work in thinking through his heart in light of the far-reaching promises of God. I think he's doing the same thing in Psalm 139. See, God knows David completely. And in Psalm 139.4, which sounds much like this, you'll remember that David said, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now, how can God know the words that are coming out of your mouth before they come out of your mouth? Well, it's because God sees your thoughts clearly. As clearly as you can see the person next to you or the couch that you're sitting on or the TV that you're watching right now, God sees our thoughts before we say them. Sound familiar? Now he goes on to say in Psalm 139 that God knit him while he was still in his mother's womb. And there's nowhere that he could hide in heaven on earth from the presence of God in his sight. Neither life nor death, there's nowhere to escape the presence of God. Now I know that if you're thinking about that, ladies, and you're thinking if there was a guy that said that about me, that's a good time to run, right? The guy that he sees you all the time. Uh, kids, uh, kind of a creepy part of Santa Claus. The fact that he sees you when you're sleeping and he sees you when you're awake. I don't know if I want a big guy watching me when I don't want him watching me. Now, there's a time in my life when I was young and I uh, had a season where I was living in rebellion for a few months and 
Uh, my, dad had pray, uh, my dad and mom had taught me to pray at nights, and so I remember praying at nights and literally not praying for certain things like repentance of sin and thinking in my mind, I'm going to hide those things from God. And yet, David says, there's nowhere in your heart to hide from God. God sees it. And I think here, David recognizes that, that it wasn't really anything special in his heart that initiated God's love towards him. It wasn't David's heart purposes that had brought about all of this greatness. Did you catch that? David doesn't see his heart as the ground of grace. God's heart, God's promises, God's purposes brought this greatness upon David. David's heart didn't do it. David's heart did not merit God's favor. In fact, when you read this in the context of 1 and 2 Samuel, I think this shows that David isn't special because of the purposes of his heart, but because of the purposes of God's heart. John Woodhouse in his commentary explains what a king after God's own heart means. He, he says this, In contrast to Saul, he was not chosen by the people for himself, but he was a king provided by God for himself. Now, when I think about the nature of the way that the gospel ought to strike my heart and your heart. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a quote by Tim Keller. You've probably heard it often, where he says, the essence of the gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I, I think that's good. But if we're thinking about the, the essence of something and what, what is most central to, to that thing existing, I think that I would need to add something to that in the sense that the essence of humility seems to be borne out, at least here with David, of our holy God revealing his steadfast love to us in the face of both our merits and demerits. In other words, it's not just me thinking less of myself, but it's actually me seeing the world in light of a great vision of God. Now, I don't want to bury the lead too much, but Jesus Christ is the offspring David longed for, who ushered in a new and a better covenant, the one that this one pointed towards. And it is a covenant that was sealed with the blood of Christ, which promises sinners far from God, deserving of his just wrath, that they can become objects of God's steadfast love. See, before God's grace stopped the apostle Paul, he asked, do you know who I am? In fact, you'll notice in places in the New Testament, he begins to, to go through his resume, a resume I bet he had from prior to Christ, a resume where he was talking about the great things and merits that he had on his resume. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was righteous according to the law, had great academic teaching. He was zealous to persecute the cross. But he was rendered speechless before the resurrected Christ in Acts 9. And meeting Christ changed his estimation of his own worth, his merits. Such that in Philippians 3, 7, after going through his resume, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as lost because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
but he also saw his demerits, his sins more clearly in light of the purposes of God's heart for him. As he looked at God's purposes for the nations on display and sending his son to die for sinners. You see in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he looks at his demerits and he sees them more clearly because of who God is. It's no longer those sinners in me. Instead, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he groups himself with the sinners and says, I am the chief of sinners. What a change. What a change that grace has made in the way that Paul views himself in light of the knowledge of God. See, God's power is given. If God is God, then he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He's God. But the goodness of God's grace on display in our lives from the breath in our lungs to the eternal covenant of God's steadfast love to us in Christ ought to flood our souls and work out into praise to God for His heart, not our hearts. Our vision is reoriented and disoriented from this world when we see God as God is. See, His works, not ours, are highlighted so that He receives all of the glory. Every last drop of glory goes to Him. Now, the third question is, who is like Israel? See, David praises God for his favor on his people Israel. God creates a community of grace. Now, as we said last week, God's promises to Israel would come through David. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And catch what he says in verses 23 to 24. Here's what he says. He says, and who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving them out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And the question is, who is Israel? Now, when, when I read this, I have certain expectations for the kind of answer that's coming. Now, why did God choose Israel of, of all the nations that surrounded her? I'm thinking the answer is going to be about Israel, right? I'm thinking maybe God would emphasize and highlight Israel's size. I mean, they're, they're, maybe it's because they're a great nation, or maybe it's their, uh, their IQ, they're smart. Uh, maybe it's because they had a really good education, or they're strong. Maybe it's their faithfulness, their holiness, and that they're unlike the other nations, not as bad as the other nations that are around. But David highlights God. They're special because God. Did you, did you notice in the verse it says that God redeemed. God made himself a name. God did awesome things. And speaking to God, he says, you redeemed Israel for yourself from Egypt and its God. You, you established for yourself Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. See, God does speak elsewhere. 
of what Israel did to be chosen by God. Maybe you remember this back in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, where Israel's wondering why us, we must be pretty special. And God says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest, smallest of peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you with a a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. See, God did not choose to love Israel because they were great. They were the smallest. God chose Israel because he is good. They did not first love God. He first loved them. And God here speaks to a kingdom built by God's grace alone. Israel, a community of grace. Now, Israel never realized the people that God created them to be. But they were a marker and a picture of what was to come. In fact, the prophet Hosea was speaking of Israel during what seemed to be good days, though they were unfaithful. And he says in Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now Matthew picks up on this verse, and some commentators, when they talk about Matthew's use of it, they think, oh, he's really sloppy with his exegesis. But what happens is, is actually pretty profound. See, Matthew understands that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the faithful son who obeyed God in every way, even in the wilderness. And and that he is a representative head of the people of God, so that as goes the king, so goes the people. And so Jesus ushered in a new and better covenant that invites people from every tribe and nation to enjoy the favor of God. And catch this, God still chooses to love and save a lowly people to himself, a small people. See, God tells the Corinthian Christians to consider their calling in Christ. And he says, God's still about the the means of using small things to make much of the greatness of the glory of God. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 28 to 29, as perhaps Corinthians are fighting because they think too much of themselves over a whole litany of issues, he reminds them up front in this letter before he corrects them, remember, God chose what is low and despised in the world. He's talking about them. He's talking about Jesus. Even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, catch this, so that for the purpose of no human might boast in the presence of God. David sitting before the ark in the presence of God, he's not boasting. He's humble before God because he's seen God. Now, I love these verses where we are told prior to this in verse 27 that God did not choose many wise or many, para- or many powerful or many noble according to birth. No, he chose the lesser things. And Salida Hastings, who was a countess of Huntingdon, an important lady with power and position was meditating on these verses. And she said, blessed be to God that it does not say any mighty, any noble. It says many mighty, many noble. I owe my salvation to the letter M. In other words, it is a profound thing when someone great is able to enter the kingdom of God. It is a great and a profound and a special and a unique thing 
not because God could not have chosen the wise and the noble and the great of this world, but because he has chosen those things which most make glory of him. See, we are God's people. And the gospel turns the kingdom upside down for God's people, doesn't it? It doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world and the way that this world operates, where preferential treatment often comes to those who can do the most for you. No. The gospel says, let the exalted boast in his humiliation. And let the humble and lowly boast in his exaltation. The gospel turns things upside down. Now, Trinity Bible Church, let me just encourage you that we, first of all, are a community of grace. That is, first and foremost, what we are, who we are. A people who are the object of God's unrelenting, steadfast love. See, God's grace defines us. God redeemed Israel from Egypt, and God redeemed us from a world destined for the just wrath of God. We are God's holy nation, his holy priesthood. We are God's treasured possession, a people. And God treasuring us ought to result in humility and praise for God being God and God being good in ways that we do not deserve, that we cannot make sense of. And the cross itself is the ground zero of the grace of God for us. And let me just remind you that the ground is flat at the foot of the cross. There's no one who stands above the other. The foot of King Jesus and his cross, we are all desperately needy for grace that only can come from God and not because of what we have done. See, those who know grace, Trinity Bible Church, are those who show grace. And here's what that looks like. If you know grace, you celebrate the gifts, the spiritual gifts of others as a work of God, something that God has done, that evidences his power at work amongst his people to build up his church, the kingdom that the gates of hell shall not prevail against. We celebrate those things. We are a happy people, and we're not boasting in individuals, but we are celebrating evidences of the grace of God. You'll never be surprised by how much other brothers and sisters need that note of encouragement, need that word of keep on pressing on, that word of I see your faithfulness and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to God for it. Never underestimate how much that word of encouragement might be needful for a brother or sister who need to be reminded that God is at work in them. We celebrate the spiritual gifts of others as God's work. What does grace look like on the ground? Well, we don't hide behind self-righteous claims. We're not a people that are angry. See, self-righteousness is often detected by anger. Anger, when people begin to expose our weaknesses. You know why you get angry when somebody exposes your weakness? Because it is a shelter and a wall that you've built around yourself. And you cannot believe that you really are loved with the steadfast love of God 
based on your relationship with Christ and not what your hands have done. If you really see Christ clearly and yourself in Christ, then you're able to confess your sins to one another. You don't have to get angry when people expose shortcomings. Now, there's a way to do it, right? Like there's a way to, to help someone see their sin or, or see weaknesses. There's a, there's a way of doing it with grace, with love, with a heart for that person. And there's a, a way to do it that's, that's not helpful. But if we really understand the grace that's been shown to us, we can receive and we can give loving rebukes in a way that are life-giving and hopeful. You know, we'll look more, the more that we understand God's grace, the more that we will refine our surgeon's scalpel, and the more that we can put away that chainsaw that we tend to deal with people with, right? <laughs> Anybody want to have surgery with a chainsaw? I'm just going to tell you, it's not going to work out well. But if we have a, a scalpel, like a heart surgeon, then we can actually be life-giving in the way that we cut. We know that self-righteousness, we don't have to hide behind it. We don't have to hide behind our educations and fear that somebody's going to catch us being wrong. We don't have to hide behind PhDs and MDivs. We don't have to hide behind big salaries, behind good deeds, behind claiming that we deserve God or others to treat us better. You know, there, there are subtle ways that self-righteousness can work itself out in your life. Uh, I find it working out in, in my life at times. Um, I've had people as a pastor slander me in the past. I mean, there are few things that hurt worse than somebody attacking the reputation of a pastor. Now, my first response in those moments often is to actually complain to others in God about all the things that I have done that I don't deserve to be treated this way. I was doing that just the other day, and I opened up my Bible. I was reading, reading 1 Corinthians 4, and I read about the way that Paul responded to slander in his life. And it says he responded in love because he knew the unmerited favor of God put every earthly trial in perspective. And he was awaiting a greater day that was coming where Richard Sibbs writes, even reputations will be raised from the dead. See, we really see the unmerited favor of God. It makes us a loving, gracious people. Uh, we know that we can show grace if we know grace and that we are able to celebrate God's grace vocally. See, if God's grace is unmerited, then no one is too good to need it. There's no one that's too good at Trinity Bible Church to need God's grace desperately. We're all needy. We're all hungry for God's grace. And there's also no one that's too bad to receive it. No one too bad to receive the grace of God. So when we gather to sing about the grace of God and His goodness and His glory and His redemptive purposes, we, we are singing loudly because we know we need grace. And when we scatter, we are proclaiming it. We're telling others, the lost of this world, who have no hope, you need to know that you need grace. You need the unmerited, relentless favor of God. And it is available. It's available in Christ. It's the last time that your heart was, was welled up in such a way that you wanted to beg people to come and know the love of God. And let us pray that God would give us people that we need to share the gospel with this week. Even if they're running from us as they run from the virus. 
Now, you might not want to tackle them because, like, there could be laws against that. I don't even know what the legal things are right now. But we want to share the grace of God because of the goodness of God to us. Not only that, we look different because we've been loved by God. Now, here's the key. I think some people look at unmerited favor and they think, well, I guess it doesn't matter how I live if God shows his favor not based on anything that I have done. And yet what we find is the grace of God is a grace that comes to us that changes us if we've really experienced it. See, we look like Jesus more and more. We are changed more to the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to the next if we have met the Holy Spirit of God. Do you see that in your life? Do you see change not to earn God's favor because that's been given, but because you have received God's favor, you long to reflect the character of the steadfast love of God. Well, this leads to David making two bold requests of God in verses 25 to 29. Quickly, two, two petitions. First, notice that David says, confirm forever your covenant with David. Now, take note, David hears and believes the awesome promises God makes. And then he says, confirm it. And this is what he says in verses 25 to 27. He says this. He says, And now, O Lord, God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, I love the picture here. Uh, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, if you look at that line, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant literally says, you have uncovered the ears of your servant to hear and, and believe the good news about this future. See, God gave David ears to hear and to believe the good news of God's future plans for him, Israel and the nations. And in light of that grand plan, he emboldens him to approach the Lord God and his throne. The throne of Yahweh Sabaoth, the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And here, notice the God-centeredness of what he says. Verse 26, he is asking for this confirmation, and he says, and your name will be magnified forever. And the house of your servant, David, will be established before you. See, David asked for confirmation that God will bring about his purposes for the glory of God's name. A clear view of God's grace, his plans, and his purposes. It emboldens and shapes the prayers of God's people. If we understand God's word better, we're going to pray better. If we understand God's grace, we can come boldly before the throne of grace and prayer in our time of need. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. You know, without God's Christ and his grace to us in the face of Christ, we would be fearful for God's kingdom to come. But in Christ, we can pray with Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 
that's better. That's better than my will. And it's good that your kingdom come now that I'm in Christ. It was bad before, but now it's good. And he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But David also prays, bless me forever in verses 28 to 29. Here's what he says. He says this. And now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true and you have promised this thing, this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. So that it may also continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now you remember that the ark of the name of Yahweh Sabaoth brought blessing to the house of Obed-Edom back in 2 Samuel 6. And David here, and David there blessed his own household after blessing the people of Israel. But this prayer is a prayer for a blessing that would have far-reaching implications. The blessing of the nations promised to Abraham. See, Jesus has come to bring blessings to the nations. That's good news. Now, if you're a non-Christian, know that our church is more than a social club. Uh, I was having a conversation with a non-Christian friend of mine just the other day, and he was talking about how hard it must be not to come to church and was saying, you know, I know that y'all are really probably missing that whole social aspect of religion and that kind of thing. And uh, it was then that, you know, my pastoral instincts, evangelistic instincts kind of jumped in. I said, well, actually, we're not just a social club. Uh, We're a group of people who believe that we've experienced the favor of God in Jesus Christ. We are a people who actually believe that one another has the Spirit of God sealed upon their hearts so that we are literally brothers and sisters in Christ that we'll be together forever. So this is just the beginning of what is to await. This isn't just to satisfy our daily longing for social activity. It does that and more, but it is about something that is much grander. Now, there are two things, if you're a non-Christian and thinking about what does it mean to receive God's unmerited favor, two things you need to know. One is God's unmerited favor, it's merited. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus merited the favor that we receive at the cross. See, Jesus, the faithful son who obeyed God in every way, died for you on the cross and was raised from the dead to declare that if you respond to this gospel, you will be saved. See, you're not good enough to win God's favor. You're not smart enough. You can't look at the guy that's next to you and say, hey, I'm so much better than this guy and that guy and most guys this girl, that girl, and most girls. So therefore, I think that God's just going to let me in based on like the curve. Now, if we understand the unmerited favor of God, it only comes through the one who has merited it, Jesus Christ. We deserve God's wrath. And it's God's grace that that shows us that, that helps us to see ourselves truly. Uh, John Newton, who was a, a bad guy, a racist, murdering, horrible guy, working on a ship, and he writes in Amazing Grace, the song that he wrote for the church after he was saved, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." See, if, if you understand grace, 
then what that means is, is that it's going to teach you two things. One is, your heart needs to fear. Your merits are not enough before God. But it's going to teach you a second thing as well. It's going to teach you to to have those fears relieved in the sense that your merits are not enough, but the merits of Christ are more than enough. But there's a second thing. Not only is God's unmerited favor merited, it's also conditional. And I mean that in this sense. You must repent, according to the Bible, and confess Jesus Christ is Lord to be saved. That's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end, that we must proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And when we do, we are promised that we are transferred from the domain of darkness and this world and the kings of this world to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness and the redemption of sins. So if you've not put your faith in Christ, you're not in a good place and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you of what that means. If you say you're Christ today, that means that you become an object of God's unrelenting steadfast love. And moms, today I know that this might feel like a great day for some of you and a hard day for others, but be humble to know that if you have kids who love you and Jesus, faithfulness is good, but it cannot account for the rich favor of God in your life. Whatever celebration your kids have for you, it is small and meaningful but light in comparison to the love that God has for you. If you are a mom who finds today hard because you can't have kids and you have, or that you have kids that don't love you, that they don't love God or, or both, maybe all of the above, maybe you're, you're despairing this morning because of loss, I want to remind you of the encouragement that you have the favor of God in heaven towards you. You know, all of the things that we put our confidence in our degrees, our 401ks, our mom of the year awards, our good behavior awards, all of those pale in comparison to the value of the unmerited favor of God in Christ. You know, I'm reminded of, of what grace does in Luke 18, 9 to 14 to two individuals, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, the Pharisee and the tax collector go down to God's house to pray. And the first one, the Pharisee, begins to pray and he says, God, I praise you that I'm not like all of these other sinners like the thieves, the adulterers, and even this tax collector who he's with. And and, and it's then that he points out his resume, and God, I'm just glad that, you know, this resume is clearly your favor upon me. And then you see this humble-hearted tax collector who was considered to be a sinner of sinners of the day. And he was standing far off, was beating his chest and praying, God, be merciful to me a sinner, period. No resume. Thank you for your love for me. I'm unworthy of it. You see it, the Pharisee comes before God saying, do you know who I am? And then you have this poor tax collector who comes and says, who am I that you would love me? Nothing meriting God's grace, his mercy. And Jesus says, it was the tax collector who went home justified, not the Pharisee. Because whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Are you Christ? If you are, then you are an object of the unmerited favor of the Lord. Let's pray.